Hey, good morning, Sanctus Church. We are so glad that you are joining us here today at any of our locations or online. And welcome to week two in this very, very interesting series on eternity. Last week, we started struggling through the question of eternity when we talked about what we, the Bible says is the great white throne moment or the, the day, the, the judgment of all of us. And I think lots of us are struggling and, and thinking and reeling and, and trying to work out the implications. So, so today, for part two, I thought I'd do something a little less controversial. I'm going to talk about hell. Now, I think a lot of us, when we think about hell, uh, a lot of things come into our mind. Dante's Inferno, some medieval pitcher with fire and, and demons with pitchforks, or, or we have some movie in our mind. Uh, one of the earliest memories I have about thinking about hell happened in Disney World. Now, some of you parents are like, oh, yes, I've been to that hell. My children freaked out 400 times. I sat in line for five hours. Yes, that's not the hell we're talking about, though I've experienced that one too. It happened when I was in a ride that no longer exists, and I've shared this before, this ride with you. It was called Mr. Toad's Ride, and, and so years ago, this ride was an, an adventure sort of for kids, and it was based, I believe, on an English fairy tale. And by the way, as a side note, ha- have you seen how disturbing most fairy tales for children are? Hansel and Gretel, which of course is cannibalism, and Little Red Riding Hood, some little girl in the middle of the forest being eaten by a wolf that kills the grandmother, and then the three little bears. I mean, where are her parents? And on and on it goes. Well, this is just as bad because in this ride, you go in the ride and you're going through, I think, this English manor and there are all these animals that come to life. And then at the end of the ride, you turn a corner and there is a light and you realize the light is a train and it's coming at you. And then there's this big sort of gush of wind. And then you turn a corner and you're in hell wonderful. And I remember as an eight-year-old or or six-year-old seeing this, there's all these animatronic demons and this fake fire. And it's sort of like you went into hell for a minute and then you, you got out. That's one of my earliest memories thinking about the question of hell. Most in our culture might not even believe in it or some do believe in it, but we don't think about it. But in our language, it's filled with it. Uh, Lots of times people say things like, to hell with you. And the reason why that is considered a swear word or an evil phrase is because it is a declaration that you should go to a terrible place. Even last week, we were driving in in our minivan, and my daughter or my son, one of the two, said, oh, oh, that was a damn fine piece of food. And we turned around and said, like, what? We don't use that language at all in our family. Where did you learn that? We had this whole conversation. She's like, well, it's not a bad word. It's a phrase. We're like, no, no, actually, it's connected to hell. And so we had a whole conversation about hell and why it doesn't relate to burgers at all. And just so you know, our family's as screwed up as yours. So we're all good. Time and time again throughout culture and history, the issue of hell arises. John Lennon famously penned, imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, only above us, the sky. Theodore Parker, thinking about Jesus, said, I believe that Jesus Christ taught eternal punishment, but I do not accept it on his authority. Jesus said these words in Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus' best friend, John, recorded these words in John 3.36, just verses after the famous verse, John 3.16. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John Hanna wrote this, no one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. 
And no one who is in heaven will be able to ever say, I put myself here. C.K. Chesterton, the great philosopher and Christian once said, hell is the greatest compliment God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. So why should we talk about hell? Isn't it some medieval relic, something invented to scare people and control people, some ancient idea that we've just moved beyond? Well, our first problem is Jesus talks about it all the time. Actually, Jesus talks about judgment and hell more than he does heaven. I love, again, that older, famed Anglican thinker, J.I. Packer, when he gave three reasons why every generation of Christians needs to wrestle down the question of hell. He said, first, we need to discuss it because the idea of hell is being debated and supposedly debunked. He says the sentimentality of the secularism in the modern West with its exalted optimism about human nature, its shrunken idea of God, and its skepticism as to whether personal morality really matters has made it really hard for Christians to even take the reality of hell seriously. He's basically saying Christians think more like non-Christians than they do Christians on this subject. Second of all, he says there's no such thing as good news without the other side. In other words, if Jesus is Savior, you have to be saved from something or a group of things, right? And he writes, the gospel presented by many Christians today has no teeth anymore. When the message about Jesus Christ is expressed only in terms, listen closely, of providing superior joy or peace to that which the world already offers, joyful and peaceful non-Christians patronize the message giver and ignore the message completely. In other words, he says, rather than trying to convince non-Christians they're not really happy, side note, many of them are more happy than lots of us in church, Christians need to faithfully proclaim the complete gospel in the Bible. And third, we need to talk and struggle and believe in the existence of hell because the Bible says it and Jesus references it time and time and time again. Remember the passage I quoted last week, Jesus' own words in Matthew 25, 31? Speaking about himself, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations. Think about how, how wild that is. Jesus says all ethnic groups will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And those people will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, don't miss what Jesus said. Number one, he's putting himself in charge. And number two, he says that the existence of hell, the place of hell, the reality of hell was not made for humans. Originally, it was meant for the devil and his angels when they rebelled. But now, since we've rebelled, we've now fallen under the same just issue. Uh, Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction shut out from the presence of God and from the glory of his might. So the question then is, well, how does someone end up in heaven and hell and what is it and why does it matter? Well, we started talking about this last week. It has to do with us admitting something that we're lost that we've sinned, that we're actually under God's wrath because of our choices and sin. In other words, God has set some laws and we keep breaking them, but then we think there are no consequences, but there are because he's holy. 
And the only way out to deal with this law-breaking is not good works, it's not being religious, it's not spirituality, it's not human achievement in any direction, it's not belief or unbelief, it's seeing the love of God in Jesus and accepting God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness despite our sin. Let me say this again, God does not love us just the way we are. God loves us despite the way we are because we've all sinned and rebelled and attacked the holiness of God and told God our creator we know better than him. And when we did that, and we've all done that, Adam and Eve started it, we've all agreed ever since through our actions and thinking, this places us under his justice and wrath. And yet, despite the rebellion, he still loves us. And he keeps providing a way home in this time through the person and work of Jesus. So no matter if you're a seeker here today or a skeptic or a brand new Christian or you've walked with Jesus for for years, we all need to wrestle with what do you do with Jesus who talks more about hell and judgment than heaven? I mean, he clearly taught it, claimed it, and he even claims he'll send people there. Like we learned last week, judgment, as one wrote, is God's underlining and the ratification of the relationship we choose in this life towards God. If we know him now, we'll know him more then. If we don't know him now, we will not know him then. Heaven and hell, he writes, are not as much about future reward and punishment, but the logical outcome of our relationship to God in this life. Now, there are two words used for what we would say in English, hell in the New Testament, Hades, which we'll get to later, and then Gehenna. Now, Gehenna comes from a real historical geographical place. Just outside of the walls of Jerusalem, I was there just a few months ago, there's a small valley, and in Jesus' day, there was a huge garbage dump that burned day and night. It burned the city's garbage. It also was a place where criminals were buried and also a place where people who died who had no family or were not claimed were also buried. But its origins are way more terrifying. This place used to be a terrifying place where religious atrocities took place. You can start reading about it in 2 Kings 23.10. It says he desecrated Topath, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, So no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. Originally, this is a terrifying place where the people of God, the people that knew God, were involved in worshiping a demon god called Molech. And they used to sacrifice their live children in fire to this false god. Later, God would speak about this place again in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7.30, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes. They have built high places in Topeth and in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in fire, something I did not command nor even entered into my mind. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topeth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury their dead until there's no more room. And the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. So From the Old Testament time, right through the time of Jesus, this physical place became a symbol in Jewish thinking to describe what was going to come in the not yet. A place of burning, a place of uh, where criminals and lost people were buried, a place of sin, a place of judgment, a place of death, a place of never-ending of horror. Now, one of the strongest passages that deals with the afterlife And this side of the afterlife is a parable Jesus used to talk about the issue of dignity, money, and why what happens in this life ripples into the next life. And the story, when Jesus begins to teach it, starts now, not in the not yet, in the everyday, boring, normal life. 
And it reads like this in Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every single day. The guy was rich, but how rich? Well, Jesus doesn't even leave it to our imagination. He systematically points out this man's wealth. Number one, it says he was dressed in purple. This comes from an ancient cloth dye that was incredibly expensive to buy and very hard to produce. It took thousands of little snails to produce very small quantities of this purple. So it was incredibly expensive. And and so this is referring to the guy's outerwear, like his jeans or his shirt or his jacket. In other words, in our culture, this guy is wearing beautiful stuff. But not only that, then it says he also wore fine linen. That's the underwear of the day. So think about this. This guy basically was wearing Saks underwear, wore Gucci, OVO, Supreme, and Burberry every single day, but there's more. Jesus ends by saying that he lived in luxury every day. The old King James says he fared sumptuously every day. It means he had the best food, Kobe beef, top-grade sushi, Cristal caviar, a personal chef. This guy's got it all. Clothing, houses, the cottage, cars, personal jet, travel, everything. And interestingly, we don't see any reference at all Do you see it? I don't see it to any terrible sin other than the guy's rich. But we're going to learn that something here leads him to destruction. He does not listen to God's word. And because of that, he misses out. Now Jesus changes the story. He contrasts the powerful, the wealthy, the the good looking and the good living with another. The opposite. Economically, socially, educationally, physically, a man with no hope at all. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, and he was covered in sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, the next scene starts at the wealthy man's gate, which means he has a really large home in this time. And it says that Lazarus was laid at the front gate, and I'd never caught this before, though I've heard this parable my whole life. That that a group of people would have to carry him and place him there or dump him there, which implies that he's crippled. In other words, he couldn't do that thing, and he had to be brought. And why does that matter? Because in Jewish religious thinking, if you were a cripple, in that culture, you were considered spiritually unclean and under God's wrath and not fully accepted by God because if you were born crippled or became crippled, it was a sign that you or your parents had sinned. But more, the dogs came and licked his sores, and this is important. It doesn't just show us how bad the situation is, but actually also being licked by wild dogs makes you spiritually unclean. By the way, at this time, I know lots of us love dogs, but Jews did not keep dogs. They were all street dogs. And it's really interesting, in the Talmud, which comes later after Jesus' life, in the Jewish writings, uh, Rabbi said this about someone having no good life when he said, if you depend on another person for food, or you're ruled by your wife as a man, or you had a body full of sores, you had no life at all. So this man was considered spiritually unclean, not connected to God, physically, emotionally, financially, supernaturally ruined. And out of all the parables Jesus would tell, he is the only key character that is given a name, Lazarus. And why? (laughs) Because Lazarus means God has helped me. And you can imagine Lazarus going, God has helped me? Look around. Absolutely not. But don't forget the name because it's going to matter in a minute. And so at this point, the religious crowd listening to Jesus see how things are, how bad they are. And then the scene changes as they're listening for both rich and poor because death shows up. 
And like we shared last week, death is the great equalizer. At death, money, education, beauty, power, sex, experience, houses don't count for anything. The only thing that counts is who you know, not what you had. Like I jokingly said, there's no U-Hauls at any funeral service. The Egyptians tried. It's now just in museums. Now the crowd, I guarantee you at this moment, is mesmerized and engaged and exciting. And here's what they would be thinking to our shock. This poor guy's going to get it. God's going to deal with this guy now in hell. You see, people expected the rich guy to go to heaven. And we go, well, why? Well, to the religious audience at this moment, if you were Jewish and faithful and rich, it was a sign that God had blessed you. And suffering was a public sign of sin. And oh, by the way, this brings us back to that burning garbage dump. Many historians tell us that when someone was incredibly poor or unknown or they died without a family, they were taken to that pit. So physically, there's a great chance that Lazarus himself would be buried right near the burning pit. And so the crowd's going, he actually is physically going and then spiritually going to where he must go forever because, you know, his life is a sign he's messed up or his parents did. And then Jesus turns the tables And with anger and astonishment and agitation, Jesus says these words. The time came for the beggar to die, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The old phrase is Abraham's bosom. This is a place of comfort, a place where all the righteous people will go before the physical resurrection, before the new heavens and the new earth. The same word is used for Jesus between Jesus and the Father in John 1.18. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father or at the side of the Father. So Abraham's side means the presence of God himself. So when you die and you're in right relationship with God and the resurrection has not happened yet, this is the place you go. This is the waiting room, the good waiting room. Remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and there were two thieves and one thief said, would you have mercy on me? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, but the resurrection hasn't happened yet. We're all here. That's Abraham's side. It's paradise. So Jesus says, angels carry Lazarus to Abraham's side. Abraham, the one who heard God's voice. Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith. Abraham, the one that God chose to meet. And Abraham loved him and obeyed him. And and of course, in the original audience's mind, this is God's presence and joy. Like this is like a son coming home to dad. And the crowd, I guarantee you, is wondering why is the poor beggar who God should have thrown into eternal hell actually in heaven? And then Jesus brings home the great reversal and moves the imagination of the people from the joys of heaven to the reality of the other side of the great divide. He says the rich man also died. Oh, and he was buried. And in hell, where he was tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. There's that second word, hell. It's the word Hades a place of punishment, a place of waiting, a place of torture. It's the place, it's the reverse waiting room. But it's not the lake of fire. It's not Gehenna. Remember, we we read this passage last week. Let me read it again. Revelation 20, 14. This is after everything ends. Then death and Hades, hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire, that's the second death. And if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire fire. So the rich man is in Hades and was in torment and was experiencing great loss. Okay, so what has he lost? Well, he's lost life and wealth and a relationship and the presence of others 
And that's very important you catch this. He's alone. But deeper than that, he's lost the vision of God. See, we need to recapture this moment. This is the great and terrible truth about hell. When we die, all human beings will see God in his fullness. And at that moment, we will see who we're made in the image of, who makes us complete, who we're made to walk with. And after a vision of beauty and perfection, of reality itself, and when we fully understand who we're called to be and who we're made to walk with and know, at that moment, all that is given is removed. You see all you should have been and could have been and who you could have known, and then God honors our decision and removes us. And then it also says that he's literally suffering. I mean, none of us want to talk about it, but it's right there. And it says he's suffering. Now, the implication is, like, there's fire. Now, is the fire real? Uh, what is it? Well, Jesus says in Mark 9, 48, that hell is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, others teach, well, it can't be, of course, real fire because Satan and the demonic who will be thrown there in the end, well, they're not physical, Others say that the lake of fire is where death and Satan and others will be destroyed forever. It's called annihilationism. You'll cease to exist. And so you sit in Hades and you suffer of loss and whatever, and then you go in and you're gone. Well, I struggle with that. I'd like that idea more, but I struggle with it because Jesus and Paul keep using eternal words for everything. But no matter where you land, here's the point. It's bad. It's really bad. Jesus continues the story, moving the crowd from bad to worse, like the condition of Lazarus in the life before. Now Jesus brings home the new eternal reality for the rich man. So the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And and what's shocking is, and most of us probably didn't catch it, this shows that even in this waiting place, the rich man's heart has not changed. He says, Abraham, send the poor guy down to help me out down here, like Lazarus is still the slave and the secondary person. Even he, who never expressed mercy, is commanding mercy even here. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. Abraham refuses the request and listen closely. He says in your lifetime, which means our lives now ripple into the not yet. And he did not spend his time meeting God or doing the things of God. He had access to God's word. I mean, he's he's a Jewish person, but he was deaf to it. Oh, and then Abraham says these next words that are so incredibly important for all of us to catch. And Abraham says, and beside all of this, Between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed. So those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there to us. I mean, we need to catch this to understand how serious this conversation is. There is a great chasm that has been fixed. In Greek, this is a permanent statement. It is a permanent chasm. It is unbridgeable. There is no way to go from one to the other. It is impossible There's no short-term missionary trips from heaven to hell, and there's no vacations from hell getting into heaven just for a moment. It's done. Well, the rich man is not done. He cries out again, a different tone now in his voice. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my dad's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, for the first time in the story, The man in all of his agony suddenly thinks about someone else, not just himself. 
And he shows concern, yes, for his family, but for his five brothers living a very similar life that he had led, which led to this current situation. And Abraham replies in the most shocking of ways. Oh, they've got the Bible. I mean, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Let them go, he says, to the Bible. They have it. Most of the world, Greeks and Romans and barbarians, as they called them at the time, they don't have it, but you're God's people. You have it. They know who God is. They've got the temple. They have God's heart, his message. Let them go to the source. Let them go to God's heart expressed in word. It's all there. They just need to listen and obey. It's the same even here, though we live in a post-Christian, de-Christian moment. There are still hundreds of thousands of churches in North America, and every hotel room still has a Bible, I guarantee you, in North America, and every, every single bookstore still sells these, and there's a, a million podcasts. Just let them go and listen to the gift that is already there. It's interesting, by the way, to note that listening does not mean understanding or obeying. Oh, by the way, this is when we all need to lean in because here's where we make the biggest mistake. One author writes, there is an implication that the rich man's unpleasant situation is because he's rich. He says, oh, that's impossible because Abraham was one of the richest people in the Old Testament. The, The reason why this is a problem is because the man neglected Scripture and its teachings but the rich man will not agree, of course, to this. He knows how he's reacted to the possession of the Bible, and, he, and he, he still asks for more. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to my brothers, they're going to repent. It's almost like the man gets angry, begins to yell or to scold or lash out, to declare something with an authority he doesn't even have possession of. He says, look, if my brothers see someone rise from the dead, it will be miraculous and overwhelming, and then I guarantee you they'll believe. I know they will. You have to respect my wishes. Do it and do it now. Abraham looks across the great chasm without the same tone in his voice and says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The hardness of the heart cannot even be overcome by resurrection. Miracles will not even solve this issue. This is a heart issue. Another person observed this. Think about it. Luke's readers could scarcely help thinking of Jesus at this moment. I mean, he physically rose from the dead, but those who refuse to see Jesus in the Old Testament and heed what is written refuse to be convinced when he actually rose from the dead too. When we die... And like I said last week, the plane's going down and it's guaranteed for all of us. We will all face judgment. And all of us will be judged perfectly by Jesus, no one else. Second, the scriptures are clear. After judgment, there is a fixed, permanent, non-negotiable reality. The divide is real and the divide is forever. So that means there are only two destinies. Hell, part A and B, seem to be eternal. And it seems that people are even aware they are there. What we can know for sure is it's bad, it's lonely, it's dark, it's final, and it's tormenting. And for those that know God through Jesus, it is actually peace and restored relationship and restored creation. Oh, by the way, do not mishear what Jesus is trying to say to you even right now. Again, if you read this without reflection, let me repeat this. It would seem that the rich man gets it because he had money and the poor man gets into heaven because he had such a horrible life and suffering. And though that is true, Christianity has always rejected this. 
We don't get salvation or relationship with God or eternal life or blessedness because of what we do or what happened to us. I mean, that's religion. We teach, Jesus teaches, the whole Bible teaches. Someone else needs to do it for us, and that's Jesus. Jesus is God coming for us and saving us, both rich and poor. Grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus alone, for God's glory alone. One theologian again brings such clarity when he wrote, it is not the primary purpose of this parable to teach the fearful consequences which follow the abuse of wealth or the contempt of the poor, but the fearful consequence of unbelief of having a heart set on this world and refusing to believe in the invisible world. Here known only by faith until by a miserable and too late experience, the existence of such an unseen world will then be discovered. Sin has its roots always in unbelief. The squandering of self, the contempt of the poor are only the forms in which it takes. It is most important to keep in mind that this parable is a rebuke of unbelief. And that is what Jesus is trying to get across. So, so let me ask this question of you. Again, so many of us who gather in this community are Christians by ethnic origin only. We come from a Christian family. Or we come from another part of the world that seems to be more Christian than Muslim or more Christian than Buddhist. Or, or, or others of us are seekers or skeptics or we're trying to understand. Here's the stark statement out of today. Where do you want to spend eternity? Jesus again and again said when he was here, if you want life, you have to give up yours. Listen again to the most quoted verse on earth, but read the whole thing. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, the rebellion broken, all the stuff we've done wrong world. He still loves us. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal what? Life, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. We'll talk about that next week. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, don't think about God upstairs like a really cruel uncle or father who likes hurting kids. And it's like, I can't wait to judge these sinners. No, no, this is not his heart. We broke the law. We rebelled. And because of that, we're on our way to jail. And in the middle of that, God does such a profound thing that he sends Jesus' son to actually go to jail for us. Verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. C.S. Lewis, that famed atheist who became a profound Christian author, wrote, God loves us too much for any of us to wind up in any sort of hell, present or eternal, and God loves us too much to cram heaven down our throats. This is not just some scare tactic. This is true. And God has provided a way for our sin to be dealt with and so the funeral does not have the final say and to have purpose in this life and to be in real community and to have a new fresh start and for everything we've done wrong to be sort of washed clean and also to give us the great gift of eternal life. But you must turn and humble yourself and not trust in another religion or another person or you, might not, you cannot trust ultimately in education or beauty or sexuality or power or whatever, none of it. Turn from a life without Jesus, a life of sin and separation and alienation, and ask Jesus himself to forgive you. Ask Jesus to give you eternal life. Ask Jesus to love you and give you hope. And he's inviting you to reject unbelief. You can know comfort now 
and spend eternal life later found in Jesus. What do you do with Jesus who claimed such audacious but true things? Your unbelief does not make it untrue. Repent this day and be saved. Many of us here would say we've done that. We are genuine followers of Jesus in this church from all sorts of backgrounds. And what is the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, trying to help us understand as believers? Well, here's the first thing. Every single Christian within the sound of my voice must struggle with the idea of hell and then submit to its reality. One wrote, hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that heaven will be better than we could dream and hell will be worse than we can conceive. If you're a Christian here today, you must accept the plain teaching of Scripture. Actually, this brings something home that very few of us connect the dots on. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, speaking to Christians just like us, here's what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary, the basic teachings about Jesus and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God and instruction about baptisms and the laying of the hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The idea of eternal judgment is a basic idea in the Christian faith. It's not the debatable thing. It's the starting point. It's the red line. It's what makes Christianity, Christianity, one of those things. And, and we wonder why as churches, so many of us personally or church movements are so weak and not moving towards deeper things or more profound things or making, making greater impact. Could it be that so many of us are not growing in our Christian walk because we're still debating and arguing with God and wondering and doubting the foundation, which is just the basics of our faith? We keep eating baby food, complaining about the baby food, not sure if we even believe in the baby food, and then we want steak. See, it doesn't work that way. So one of the greatest things we all need to do as Christians is have a moment this week in our own walk with Jesus or in our Connecting Small and Connect group, and we need to submit and live, I've done this before, under God's word, under Jesus' authority. He's the one who determines what is right and wrong. He's the one who tells us what capital R reality is. Not us, not our experiences, not our cultural background. No, no, not our education. He has the final say. So many of us, what we actually need to do is literally out loud say to Jesus this week, though I struggle with it and I know you don't love it, I admit there is a hell and it is real. Literally say it out loud to Jesus. Submit and confess it. Here's another thing that I think would bring so much life to our community. We, we know this all the time. The more someone is thankful, the more life they have. When is the last time you have stopped and not only thank Jesus that you have purpose in this life or he never leaves you or forsakes you or, or you know that death doesn't win in the end or he forgave you yesterday or today or tomorrow for the things you've done. When's the last time you literally out loud said to Jesus, thank you from, for saving me from hell. Thank you that I'm never going to Hades. Thank you that I will never be thrown into the lake of fire, whatever that is. 
Thank you that I don't end up in the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your grace because my sin should have led me there, but yet, Jesus, you've forgiven me. Like, just thank you. It might change your singing, your worship. It might change how you approach communion. It it might change how you see the world. Every Christian needs to submit to this. Like I've taught in the Apostles' Creed before, this is a foundational issue, not a maturity issue. This becomes a place of great thanks. This also becomes, and here's my last point, a place and a motivation to tell others. Again, Randy Elkhorn in his book, Heaven, said, it would be upsetting to us, but would we not consider it unloving if a doctor decided not to tell us that we had cancer? But of course, we'd consider the doctor very helpful if he told us we did have cancer. And would we consider the doctor unloving if he didn't tell us that it could be eradicated and he knew it could be? Why then, he writes, do we not tell unsaved people about the cancer of sin and evil and how the inevitable penalty is eternal destruction, but it can be avoided and it never, it doesn't even have to be true if you trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why so many people no longer believe, even as Christians, it is a priority to tell someone else about Jesus because they don't really believe there's eternal consequence. There is. And as we're entering now into the Easter season, let me ask you this again. Who are you praying for? Who are you intentionally preparing to invite to Alpha so they can move from death to life? Who are you going to invite in our, on our Easter series where every single week we're going to hold out the good news of Jesus and you bring them and, and you pray for them. Who are you going to take out for a coffee and tell them your story of how Jesus saved you? See, understand, if this is coming and is real, all of us should be moved by compassion beyond comfort. So let's just take a moment. And again, whatever site you're at, if you wouldn't mind standing, and let's just pray through this. Number one, God, thank you that your love And truly, uh, though we've offended your holiness and actually attacked you, you keep loving us anyway, like like a mom or dad who keeps coming after a teenager who just keeps slamming the door. Thank you. Thank you that uh, though hell was never meant for us and we've ended up there by our own rebellion and choices, you still provide a way back. Thank you. So a few things we need to say. Number one, some of us need to say, God, I'm sorry. Though I struggle with this, I'm sorry that I have said it does not exist or you don't have a right to send someone there. Like, I am sorry that I've decided I know better than you. I repent. Some of us need to say to you right now, actually, God, uh, forgive me for unbelief, not believing it's true, even though the Bible taught it, like cutting out parts of the Bible. I'm sorry, I repent. Uh, Lord, others of us have never met you. And we need to do it right now. And so if you've never experienced the mercy of God and the love of God and find a way home, just pray this. Say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want the forgiveness of sins. I don't want death to be the end. And I actually don't want to go to hell. And I admit that I'm a sinner and I've trusted in other faiths or other things or my own stuff. And I've done good things and bad things with wrong motive. And actually, I'm just here saying, forgive me. Could Jesus' work cover me, his death and resurrection? Jesus be my savior. 
I want to go to Abraham's side, and then I want to be given eternal life. I trust in Jesus. I come, I put my faith in him now, in Jesus' name. And lastly, uh, again, Father and Son, I would ask that you would send the Holy Spirit across our whole church, and you would begin to literally, in our mind, begin to bring people's faces and names forward of the people we're supposed to take out for a coffee, we're supposed to invite to Alpha, we're supposed to bring in the Easter season, like literally show us where you're working so we can bring people and so they can hear the word of God and they can experience salvation. Lord, also my last prayer is as we work this through in community and talk through this over the next few weeks, don't let any of my words be twisted by the evil one or by pain, or by history, or bad theology. Just begin to work it through. Holy Spirit, you're the spirit of truth. Help us through this difficult conversation. And lastly, we again say, thank you, God, for the mercy found in Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we all said, uh, amen. Amen.